All right. The sheep need to settle down. Our annual congregational meeting is coming up uh, a week from this, no, yes, a week from this coming Sunday, uh, February 5th, immediately following the morning worship service. We encourage everyone to come so you know what's going on. Uh, there'll be some significant announcements and changes and things that we need to be aware of. Also, uh, registration for the Chafer Pastors Conference is active on the website. Go to deanbibleministries.org slash news. We need volunteers to help out in the kitchen, registration table, uh, transportation, and if you would like to, you can, when you go to register, you can register that you would like to volunteer and help out. And of course, there's always a great need of, um, of those who would volunteer to make cookies. And, uh, the pastors just eat them up like they're, like they all want to be type 2 diabetics. So they just, graze over those cookies. How shall a young man cleanse, cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Holy Spirit, not walking according to the sin nature. So we do that by simply admitting or acknowledging our sin to God the Father. Instantly, He graciously forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Father, we're thankful we have this time together to encourage one another by our presence, to be strengthened by your word, to come to understand your grace more fully, and that we might come to understand how you work behind the scenes in your providential supervision of the outworking of your plan in human history. So, Father, we pray that as we study today that we can think clearly and understand your word and what is going on in this rather uh, complex passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when we go through life, there are numerous times when we are just wondering what in the world God is doing. I know you haven't thought about that at all in the last three or four years. Why does he allow these things, pandemics, plagues, famines? Why does he allow wars and the consequences of wars? Wars that disrupt and destroy lives. Wars that... Um, that just seem to overturn all the work that missionaries are doing in those areas. If you read through some of the various uh, magazines related to, like, Voice of the Martyrs and some of the others, and you read what is going on in these civil wars, these Islamic wars against Christians in different countries in Africa, and you go back and you look back historically uh, there have been numerous uh, civil wars and internal conflicts, tribal wars that have taken place in in Africa that have where where hundreds of missionaries have lost their lives, and you wonder what what's God doing in in these different kinds of, of events, and. We often ask the question, well, where is there any justice? Now, we're not going to be able to answer any of those questions until we are face-to-face with the Lord. So until then, we have to simply trust the Lord that he knows what he is doing and he is working out his plan. And since he is omniscient, 
and our knowledge compared to his knowledge as well, both of these are finite, but it's less than a, a, a molecule of water in all of the oceans and lakes and rivers on the planet. And, and yet that does not do justice to it because even that's a finite number and his omniscience is infinite. So he knows what he's doing. This is what Abraham recognized in Genesis 18.25. He's getting ready to negotiate with God about Lot and his family that are in Sodom and God's plan to wipe out Sodom. And at the end of verse 25, he says, somewhat rhetorically, I think, reminding himself of the truth of this statement, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. He will always do the right thing because of his, he is righteous he is just and he is he is omniscient now we're going to look at some of the ways that god handles certain situations in our study tonight in judges 13 down through 14 9 13 24 13, it should be 13 25 13 25 down to 14 9 i doubt that we get any further than that but um, that's that's the beginning of this section that goes through the end of chapter 15. It is a section that is somewhat complex. It is written extremely well as the human writer wrote under the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of lessons here, and there's a lot of strange things that are going on here. And one of the things that we must understand about how God's will and God's moving among his people, moving in the lives of humans in history, how he is able to do that, this is always the conundrum, how does the sovereign will of God work with human volition and individual responsibility. That if God has commanded certain things, we are responsible either to obey or to disobey. We're still responsible, and God will work out the consequences. And we try to somehow draw parallels with God's omniscience and God's sovereignty and our limited knowledge but the scriptures are clear that we have volition. We are responsible for the decisions we make. I'm not sure because of my deep studies on the issue in terms of uh, philosophical studies uh, about their problems with the word free will. You didn't have any freedom about who your parents were. You didn't have any freedom about where you were born. There are a lot of things in life that, that when we get right down to it, the decisions we made seem to have been the only decision we could make at that particular time. So there's a lot of debate over just what do we mean by that. But what we ultimately mean is we're accountable to God for the decisions that we make, and God has given us the real option of obedience or disobedience. And so there's going to be, um, there's, there's going to be consequences for that. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says to Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so when we try to understand some of these things, we it's it's almost impossible for us because... There is a, a difference. Uh, it's not an absolute difference. An absolute difference in philosophy is called uh, 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 equivocal. And our knowledge is not an equivocal knowledge, a total, where there's no connection between God's knowledge and our knowledge. But neither is it a univocal knowledge. Univocal means that they're identical. 
They're the same. Uni, one. They're not one and the same. There's a difference. But it, if it was equivocal, we couldn't comprehend it in a finite way. So it is analogical. We ha- there is analogy that we can, so we can understand true things about God's knowledge and gr- true things about His will, but we can't understand it comprehensively. But we do reach limits. But the scriptures are very clear that we have individual responsibility. God instituted personal responsibility when he created Adam. It's indicated by the very first command that he gave to Adam, and he commanded him to name the animals, and he commanded him to uh, work and take care, to guard and take care of the garden. And then the major prohibition, of course, was that he could not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that there would be a penalty that is accountability. That means that you're responsible for the decisions you make. If the decisions are good, then there will be blessing. If their decisions are bad, then there will be the opposite. There will be negative consequences. God allows human, human beings to make choices and re, are allowed to reap the consequences of those in one direction or another. But many times God is gracious to us and he limits our ability to make certain decisions. How many things do you want to do that if you won the lottery, you would give this much to this ministry or that much to this other ministry? You would help these people and help those people. And God said, I know what you want to do, but I don't want you to do it because it will destroy these people. So you'll never win the lottery. I'm pretty sure that's what he said to me. So I don't waste my money on it. But there are times when we, uh, when we sin and God does not lower the boom on us. Many, many times we do not reap what we sow. And that's part of God's grace. And other times, well, we do reap what we sow one way or the other. In Galatians 6, 7, and 8, we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. There are consequences to our decisions. For he sows to his flesh, uh, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so what he is talking about here is what you sow or the seeds that you plant in your life through the decisions that you make. Uh, the places you go, the decisions you make about uh, who you're going to marry, where you're going to go to college, what kind of career you're going to pursue, if you're going to pursue anything, all of these kinds of things. And it's interesting that probably 90% of the most significant decisions that we make in life probably occur before we're 16 or 17 years old. And we spend the rest of our life reaping the consequences of those decisions before we really know what all the issues are. Uh, People get married. They decide on careers and college and majors and all kinds of things, and they pick a direction they want their life to go in long before uh, they're even out of high school. And then the rest of their life is what comes from that. So we plant certain seeds, and certain seeds in this analogy uh, relate to seeds that are for the purpose of strengthening our sin nature and feeding our lust patterns. And the result of that, as that goes down through time, is we eventually reap some consequences. Some of those consequences you're not that aware of, but they affect how we make those. They affect how we think later on. They sometimes we make decisions that set us down a certain path, and and we look back on it 20 years later and say that really was a wrong decision. I had a conversation with a friend about this not too long ago, and. Uh, he reflected back on a series of decisions he made in his 20s and 30s that he knew were wrong at the time, and they shaped the rest of his life. That's what happens. 
And some of us have made decisions that were right decisions. Some of them were, we made them for all the right reasons and they didn't turn out so good. And, but God's in charge. God is working behind the scenes. And that's what we're going to see illustrated in, in Samson in this particular area. So it's through the sinful or irresponsible use of our volition that all the evil of wars, famines, plagues, violence, broken marriages, broken homes, corrupt leadership of governments, economic uh, disasters, all derive because human beings exercise their volition in wrong ways. We can't blame God. We can't blame other people. We just blame the fact that human beings make these decisions. And so it's, it's wrong to say, well, how can God let this happen? Because the alternative is God doesn't let anything happen. There's no permissive will, and everybody's just a robot because there's no volition left. So those are really the only alternatives. So it's really difficult for a lot of people to comprehend things like that. So we have a reality about the human race. We are, somebody once said, total depravity means human beings are no damn good. Well, they can't think or do anything that is good. I'll say that. They are corrupt. They are more than broken. A lot of people say we're just broken. No, we're not. We are corrupt and evil and rebellious, and we have uh, no gratitude, and we're totally self-absorbed from the moment we come out of the womb. And that's probably too attractive of a picture. We are not good. We are not basically good. We have to learn discipline from our parents, and we have to learn good manners so that we can somehow control those selfish urges. But when that's not there, when we're not taught self-discipline, when we are not taught good manners, when we are not taught to control those urges, then the result is society breaks down, Education breaks down, economy breaks down, everything starts to break down and fall apart. So apart from God's grace and intervention in the world, I think that most of the world would probably make North Korea look like the Garden of Eden. But God intervened, and we have grace. And that's what we see in in Israel in the whole period of the Judges, is that that the key statement, the theme of this period stated twice, we're going to look at them in a little while, is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the key word, it was right. They write the word yashar there as the idea of something that is straight. And and so we're determining for ourselves what's straight, but there's like this, optical illusion of what we think is straight is really crooked and windy. And everybody has a different idea of what that is. And so that is what happens when you live in a world that has been shaped by man's rebellion against God. And I do not believe that in all of humanity, the billions that have lived and uh, may live in the future... That, but a very, very, very small percentage are going to be in heaven that are believers. I don't think it's a big number at all or a big percentage. God is going to be gracious, and the infants that are born that do not live to an age of accountability will be in heaven. So there will be a lot of those. But in terms of those who grew to maturity, I do not anticipate that there's going to be a great number. Except when you look at Revelation, it's like during the tribulation, there are millions and millions of people who get saved. There may indeed be more people saved during the tribulation than the rest of human history. I don't know. But the terms that are used there are are huge numbers, uh, untold, uncounted numbers. And you look at the numbers in Revelation. How long's the millennium? It's a thousand years. You have all these big numbers all through Revelation, 144,000 um, that are the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So you have a lot of big big numbers. 
But when you come to the number of saints that are in heaven that have been martyred and who have died in the tribulation, it, it, this text says it's without number. He can count all those other big numbers, but he can't count the number of believers that make it to heaven during the tribulation. That's a huge number. So I think that when it comes to the tribulation, we're going to see quite a bit of difference there in the rest of human history. But that's just my uh, that's just my ramblings. What we see in the Old Testament period in contrast to the church age is in the church age we have given light because the light of the world came into the world. And he was uh, the light of men, and in him was life. And because he was light and declared himself to be the light of the world, which has numerous implications... And because he was life, he was able to die on the cross for our sins to give us life. But in the Old Testament, Israel is in a lot of darkness. You did not have a Savior yet. You did not have the completed canon of Scripture. In the time of Judges, all you really have is the Pentateuch plus Joshua. So there's not a lot of uh, revelation that is known. There's a lot of spiritual darkness, and Israel is surrounded by these pagan nations that are putting uh, pressure on them now because they compromise, and rather than totally annihilating them, man, woman, and baby, they let them live, and now they are reaping the consequences for that. And the result of that is that the Israelites have assimilated and want to assimilate at this particular time to the pagan philosophies of the Philistines and the other uh, Canaanite, Canaanite groups. And this is a period where they are under the domination of the Philistines for 40 years before God brings Samson along. And Samson, Samson, what a case. Talk about a case of God's grace. That's part of what we're learning here. But Samson's a poster child for the consequences of unbridled self-absorption. But he's called by God. He is provided by God in order to uh, bring, uh, to judge Israel. But he's got a distinctive ministry, as we saw last time in some of the comparisons, because he doesn't deliver the nation. But God is going to use him to so disrupt things between the Israelites and the Jews, I mean, excuse me, the Israelites and the Philistines, that the Jews just want to go along to get along. They want to coexist. How many of y'all have seen that bumper sticker? You know, coexist, where everything's okay and everything's the same, and we're not going to believe in any truth. I talked about that uh, before last time, it's a problem of relativism. There's no such thing as truth, so we all just let everybody believe whatever you want to believe. And that's what was going on there uh, at this particular time. And so Samson is a product of that relativistic culture that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Remember that, because he's going to go into Timnah, and he's going to see one good-looking Philistine girl... And he's going to come home and say what? You don't see it in the in the English because they don't translate it right. She's Miss Right. That's basically what he says. He uses that word Yashar. He says, she's right for me. You know, it's the lust of the eyes. So he is saying that, and he's just the picture of everyone doing what's right, what? In their own eyes. But you don't pick up on those kinds of little uh, textual hints if you don't see it in the original language. It's not that you don't understand what's going on, but you can't see the, the depth of the complexity of how the author is writing to bring these things to bring these things out. And what we see is Samson is exercising his volition purely for self-indulgence. He wants to do what is pleasing to him. He's driven by his emotion. He's driven by self-indulgence. And what we see here is that even when the guy that God puts there to lead the nation and deliver them is making all the wrong decisions, God in his grace is still going to work in and through him to achieve his purpose because Samson's going to be the bull in the china closet that keeps them from coexisting 
because Samson's causing too much trouble. And so we see a beautiful example as we go through this of how the Spirit of God is moving at different times in Samson. He doesn't know it, probably. It's not a result of anything he does, just that Spirit comes on him and moves him or disturbs him or uh, something along those lines, and action takes place, and it causes a lot of trouble, and that's what God wants to do. So it's an interesting picture here of how God's sovereignty works in conjunction with human volition. Samson makes his choice. They're almost always wrong, but God overrides Samson's volition without controlling his will, without making the choices for him, and God still brings about his desires and his plan. So in the next couple of chapters, chapters 14 and 15, uh, what we see is this portrayal of how God achieves his goal even through those who are almost completely disobedient. And and I keep pointing this out because God, his grace is so kind that he lists Samson along with Jephthah and Gideon and Barak in Hebrews 11 so that we can gain great, great encouragement from that because no matter how much you failed, no matter how much you've messed up, that if you've trusted the Lord at some key times in your life, God's going to list your name right there with everybody else that he's listed in Hebrews 11. And there's going to be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And you sit there thinking, well, all I'm going to get is a couple of bad pennies. Well, you may get a little bit more than that. So I want to give you an overview here of what I want to do. I don't think I'll get too much into the third one, but we'll be touching on it. First of all, I want to provide us with a summary of what's going to happen in Judges chapters 14 and 15. The story ends in chapter 16, but 14 and 15 are literarily very complex. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of paranomasias. That's a fancy word for puns and word plays to get the reader's attention. Of course, that doesn't always translate well into English. There are a lot of, uh, different kinds of literary devices that are used to draw our attention to certain things, and a lot of times these get lost in translation. But what I want to do is go over what's going to happen in this chapter and get that summary of what happens in these two chapters. Secondly, I want to start explaining the intricate and complicated plot. There's a main plot and there's a subplot, and there's an interplay between the two, and at the end of of chapter 15, they come together. And it's it's very well written. You can think of it as, as the complexities of a play. You have scene one, then you have scene two, and they're in different places. And you wonder, well, how do these two things connect? And then when you get to the end, it, it's all apparent. So it's it's a very sophisticated way of telling the story. And in that, we see the interplay between God's sovereign will and our human volition. And in this, we're going to be reminded of two things. Number three, God's infinite grace to sinners, that none of us deserve anything that God has provided for us. And yet, look at all the wonderful blessings God has given every one of us. We have uh, we have the rough spots we've all had to deal with, But overall, God has been very good to us. And so we're going to see his grace to sinners and also how God is working behind the scenes to bring about his will and to work out his plan. So we look at the last verse here in Judges 13, verse 25, and we read, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. And then at the end of chapter 15, we read, So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. That brackets this section, the beginning and, uh, and, and the end. And then we have the final episode with him, at, excuse me, with Samson and Delilah. Now, in this verse, 
we see some interesting language in relation to God the Holy Spirit. I have thought that I'm going to start, if I have time starting maybe this summer, to write chapters of a book on a theology on the Holy Spirit. There are several really good book, uh, theologies of the Holy Spirit. John Walbridge is excellent. Leon Wood is also one who... But they all have a chapter here or a chapter there that, that really needs to be refined a good bit. And a lot of them... with the Leon Wood's great on the Old Testament. He was an Old Testament guy. He was a uh, he was a Baptist, and um, I think he went to be with the Lord back in the 70s or early 80s. But he's got some outstanding stuff. But but every time I read these, I'm like, you know, there's just a lot of confusion there. So I've thought about this a lot. We need to understand how the Holy Spirit's working in the Old Testament, and it's not always clear. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon Samson. That raises a lot of questions. Was Samson aware that the Spirit of the Lord was causing this disturbance in him? Uh, was um, Samson aware that God was working through his circumstances in bringing that girl into the scope of his vision in Timnah? And was he aware that when he runs into that lion that God made sure that that appointment between Samson and the lion was kept. God is working behind the scenes to bring these things, uh, to bring these things about. Uh, or is Samson just so consumed with his fleshly lusts and desires that he's just oblivious to that? Because there's no indication anywhere in the episode that's described of Samson that he ever stops and says, Lord, how do you want me to handle this? Lord, what should I do here? Thank you, Lord, for providing uh, victory at that point. You don't see any focus on God at all. He's totally oblivious. He's just focused on on um, worshiping the lusts of the, the flesh and whatever his his desires are. So I think the answer to all those questions is probably no. He's not aware he is not concerned, and he doesn't seem to to even care because he is so self-absorbed. And what we see is he's ignorant of the ways of God. He's ignorant of the Torah. And why wouldn't he be ignorant? We see that his parents are also ignorant of the Word. So he never had a source of of, uh, of knowledge, of teaching, or anything like that. We see, we'll see in the appendices that even the priesthood is corrupt. So who's going to teach him the word? God doesn't function like a Buddhist mystic and just sort of infuse that information into people. So what are we doing? So we see him exhibiting in his life the extremes of Israel's relativism. He is a picture of rebellious, self-centered arrogant Israel that has abandoned God and has turned to the, the pagans around them and wants to completely coexist with them. So what happens is that he, the Spirit of the Lord begins to move him in Mahanadan, that is Mahana in the tribal area of Dan, the tribe of Dan. That's how you'd read that. Like when we read in Micah 5, Malachi 5, 2, that, that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Ephrat was the man who founded the city, the town, the village of Bethlehem. So it's Bethlehem of Ephrat, because there's a Bethlehem up in Galilee also. So that's how you would define it, sort of like Houston, Texas versus Houston, New Jersey, or something like that. I think they call it Houston, but... So we have the Spirit of the Lord begins to move him, and this word is translated pa'am, is translated in different versions and as disturb or to trouble or he's stirred up, something is agitating him. Uh, because this is a cow form of a verb that's only used four times in the Old Testament, 
uh, we're somewhat uncertain what it means here because the others are all passive, and this is active voice, so that makes a difference in what words mean. But it, it always seems to be have that concept of something that is being disturbed. So he's being disturbed. Something's aggravating him. Something's moving him. Now, here's a map to show you uh, a little bit about where we're talking about. He's in Zora, and he's here's Eshtaol, and so he's on the road between uh, Zora and Eshtaol, which is when the Spirit of God began to uh, work upon him. Now, this is on the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, Jerusalem would be far off to the to the northeast. Uh, this uh, river here is the Sorek River. And so you get up here, and this is still south. I think uh, uh, Jaffa would be up where Tel Aviv is, would be up a little further north. Down here you have the cities of the Philistines, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. So this is the Philistine territory. And this is sort of borderland, Beth Shemesh, Azekah. This is near where uh, David and Goliath will have their fight. So this is right on the right on the borderland between the Philistines and and Israel, and this is where uh, the action starts. And then we're told in verse one of chapter fourteen. Now Samson went down to Temnah, and saw a woman in Temnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he he sees her, and immediately nothing else matters to him. And this sets up a conflict because he is an Israelite allegedly under the Mosaic law, and he is prohibited from marrying an unsaved Gentile. Verse 2 we read, so he went up. Now look at these. He says, now Samson went down to Timnah. So if you notice the geography uh, Zora and Eshtol are up in the hills more, and Timnah is further down in uh, the Shephela, which is the, the coastal plain. So the water's running downhill. So to go to Timnah, you'd have to walk downhill. And in Israel, up and down all relate to elevation, not to north or south, which is our idiom. North is always up and south is always down. But in Israel, down means you're walking downhill, and up means you're walking uphill. But what's interesting is that the word for going down is mentioned several times in this account, which has kind of a negative overtone that, that, that really Samson is just going downhill in his spiritual life. Um, so he's, he goes back up to his parents told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Isn't he polite? He is uh, so, so considerate of his parents. Actually not. So I've gotten ahead of myself here because I want to give you the, I I forgot and didn't give you the summary. So, the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir up Samson to action, but Samson takes his own action. Instead of going after the Philistines, which is what he was called to do, he's going after them in another way. He finds a Philistine young lady that he is all excited about, and so that's what he wants to do. When we look at that phrase in the uh, that that last verse of chapter 13, how do we know what stirring him up means? Well, we find out by looking at chapters 14 and 15 that that God is going to get him all riled up to be the bull in the china closet against against the Philistines. Um, he is uh, going to go after this woman as his wife. He's going to go back and tell his parents. His parents are going to not be real impressed, but they don't have any any teaching from the Torah in their souls to tell him why he shouldn't marry her. They're going to come up with just cultural reasons, but they don't come up with biblical reasons, with what the what what the Lord said. And so he goes uh, down, and uh, then he's going to go back down with his parents. Down in verse verse four. 
And we learn in verse 4, his father and mother didn't know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking, an, that he, that is God, was seeking an occasion uh, against, to move against the Philistines. So God's behind all of this. That's verse uh, verse 25 of the 1325 and 14.4 uh, bracket this and tell us that God's the one who's behind this. Now, Samson's making all his own decisions. So then he comes down to Timnah and takes his parents with him, and we're told he goes to, walks through the vineyards of Timnah. Now, that ought to cause everybody to start thinking because he's a Nazarite, and he's not supposed to go anywhere near anything related to a grape. So he's not, he doesn't care. There he's going down to the vineyards, and then we're told the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon him when a lion appears, and he's going to physically rip the lion apart. God gives him that kind of strength. And then he's just going to leave the lion there. And we're saying, well, what does that have to do with this hot babe over in Timnah? Well, to hide and wait. This is the subplot. And so they, um, some time goes by, and he goes down to get this girl. And on the way, he discovers this carcass of the lion. And there's some interesting things there that are not natural at all. And then finally, his um, father goes down to the woman and they're going to get married, and they have this big, uh, big feast that goes on for more than seven days. And there's this uh, uh, trick that he plays on them with a riddle, and we're going to have to go through the riddle for this and the riddle for that. And then they, the the Philistines can't figure out the answer to the riddle, which was really not much of a riddle because no one knows the answer except Samson, and it wouldn't be easy to figure out. We'll talk about that. And as a result, they figured the only way they're going to get it out of him is to get his wife to seduce him. She's a wife because they're betrothed. In that culture, they haven't consummated the union, but they're all but married, so she would be his wife. And that's why she's referred to as his wife in verse 16 and following. And then uh, the result of that is that uh, he's going to go down to Ashkelon and kill 30 men to get their clothes to pay off the the, uh, the bet. And see, God's just using him to cause havoc among the, the Philistines. And then in chapter 15, that is going to uh, that is going to continue. And this is the way in which he is able to revenge himself against the Philistines. And he's going to, um, when he goes back, he finds out that she's been been married to somebody else by her father. And he seeks revenge, and he catches 300 foxes. Let's think about that for a while. How do you catch 300 foxes? And he ties them up with a torch in their tail. Now, how do you do that? How do you tie their tie, tie, tails together? And what are they going to be? They're just going to be sitting there waiting for you to strike the match and light the torch between their tails. But he does all of that. How can he do that? Because of the Spirit of God. And so they run through the fields and they um, catch the grain and the vineyard. So he's out in the vineyards again. And they catch all that on fire. And then the Philistines retaliate by setting fire to his wife and his father-in-law. And then he goes out and wipes out another uh, large number of Phil Philistines. So they put an army together and pursue him. And the men of Judah are fearful about this. And they sent 3,000 men to arrest Samson and turn him over to the, uh, to the Philistines. And Samson will... Uh, let them tie him up, but then when the Philistines uh, come, uh, when they take him to the Philistines, the Spirit of the Lord comes again, he breaks loose and grabs the jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand Philistines. So he's just a wild rabble-rouser, but he doesn't have an army, he doesn't pray to God, he's not seeking divine guidance, 
this is all happening because God's moving him in some way to do these actions, but he is making all of these choices uh, on his own. Uh, He never consults God. He, uh, the Holy Spirit comes on him several times, totally related to any uh, obedience, and he violates his, his vow numerous times. So, what happens at the beginning? He goes back to his parents and he says, I've seen this woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines and get her for me. So he's bossy, he's insolent, he is uh, uh, disobedient to his parents. And, and the language here is a Hebrew word, lakak, which means to take. And I, I think they softened it by translating it, get her for me. He's saying, take her for me. You know, he's demanding. And um, so this is what's going on here. And so his parents, and then in, um, uh, then he says, get her for me, for she pleases me. And this is that word yashar, which means she's right for me. She is right in my eyes. And that's what we see in Judges 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's repeated in Judges 21.25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. They did what's right in his eyes. That's what he's doing. He's doing just what's right in his eyes. He's totally moved by lust and emotion. So in verse 2 we read, So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen her, get her for me. This is in violation of what the scriptures, what the law, the Torah taught about intermarriage. So let's back up and understand what he didn't. Number one, in the Old Testament, intermarriage with a Gentile was forbidden to a Jew. By the time you get under the Pharisaical interpretation of the law in the New Testament in Acts, in uh, the time of Jesus, there, a Jew is not even to go into the house of a Gentile. doesn't even matter if the Gentile is a proselyte. This is the case with Peter and Cornelius. So in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4 states, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? That's what's answered with the word for. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Now, that is what happens when you have a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer. But let me tell you something. When you are seeking a wife or a woman seeking a husband, you need to be on the same level spiritually with the same spiritual focus. Because what will happen, especially if it's a man and a woman, if the woman doesn't have the same spiritual focus as the man, then she's going to pull him down. I have seen this happen again and again and again. The man is the leader in the home. And so if the man is is the one who is the uh, not-so-excited, not-so-positive believer and the woman is really positive, that's going to pull her down also. And it often happens. I've seen it I don't know how many times. But if the man is really strong, sometimes that will motivate the woman. But you have to be careful with these things. It's like missionary dating. When I pastored my first church, I was just astounded because I had grown up in a church where In teen class, we heard this taught over and over again because the pastor's son was of that, you know, 18, 19, 20 years of age, and he was really preaching to him not to marry an unbeliever or even go on a date with an unbeliever. My mother wouldn't even let me have friends that were unbelievers. From the time I was seven or eight years old, if I came home and said, hey, I just met some new person, some guy, and, and so I... I'm going to go over there and see him. No, I need to meet the parents. I need to find out, is he a believer? No, he's not. Well, no, that's out of the question completely. And so by laying that foundation when I was young, 
when I got to be 13 or 14 and started realizing there were girls and I could go out, I knew the first question my mother would ask me if I came home and said, well, I'm going to ask so-and-so to go to the movie on Friday night. My mother would say, is she a believer? So I was witnessing to the girls that I thought I might take out when I was in high school turned me into a little evangelist. But that's a good thing. And uh, fortunately, some of the girls that I went out with were believers, so that that was even better. But that that was late. So you have to lay that down, and it's hard. I can't tell you how many single men and how many single women who have been studying the Word and are focused on their spiritual life and cannot find somebody to even go out and have a cup of coffee with because they can't talk about important things. There has to be a a certain spiritual level there, even if they're both believers, because not all believers of the opposite sex, sex are created equally. And I have a friend who was single for many years, and I, she had a little saying, and I always wanted to go into business and, and, and have somebody embroidery this, this saying onto pillows. You make a fortune. It's better to be single than stupid. And that is so true. So, the law said that they were not to be involved with a pagan, with an unbeliever, with a Gentile that was not... uh, Now, the exception would be who? Ruth. Someone like Ruth, who was a Moabitess. But she wanted to become a proselyte, and she was willing to submit to the law. Second, which is a point I just made, the only exception was if the Gentile was a believer. Notice the reasoning in verse 4 with his father, but his father and mother. But his father and mother did not know that... Uh, no, I, I put the wrong verse there. Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren? This is verse 3. Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, this is interesting because they don't go to the Mosaic law. Their reasoning is just cultural and historical. It doesn't have anything to do with what the Mosaic law says. They called the Philistines uncircumcised and no other group is identified by Jews as being uncircumcised other than the Philistines. You don't ever hear them mention uncircumcised Egyptians or uncircumcised others. And there were other peoples in the ancient world who indeed were uh, were circumcised. Uh, but for Israel, it meant that you recognize your relation to the Abrahamic covenant because circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Gentile had to be a believer. That was the only exception. Third, the principle is that intermarriage with an unbeliever would involve a Jew becoming a partner with a pagan and leading who would lead him or her into apostasy. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. Solomon was influenced by his uh, 600 wives, and they were... They were idol worshippers. He even built temples for them, and then he gets seduced by that. Don't get deceived by missionary dating. I've known of a couple of exceptions to this rule, but I'm not going to mention them because people think, oh, I'll be the exception. No, you won't. Don't be self-deceived. Don't think that you're going to be able to get involved in a romantic relationship and the, all the emotions that go with that with an unbeliever and that the unbeliever, you're going to be able to win them over uh, to salvation. Now, fourth, the prohibition to intermarriage was not based on race, culture, or other human factors. Well, you say, well, the Jews are a race. Well, they're, they're basically cousins to the Moabites and Edomites. What separated the Jews was that circumcision. It's a sign of the covenant. It was a belief in Yahweh as the creator God, the redeemer. Uh, Moses had an Ethiopian wife. Uh, racial intermarriage is never an issue in the scriptures. 
uh, racial intermarriage is not in and of itself wrong. What may make it difficult is when people come out of different cultural backgrounds. Then you're going to have cultural differences, and that just uh, some things that you need to uh, you need to deal with. When people of different races get married, they need to be fully aware of these cultural differences, which might exist, and be willing to face those challenges. And that can happen if you. If you are an American, or if you're a Texan and you're born and bred in Texas and you marry somebody from Canada where they are extremely liberal, uh, let's say you marry somebody from Eastern Canada, which is dominated by far left progressives, then you're going to have some real cultural differences. Even if that person isn't that far gone, they're still influenced by those cultural values. So you have to think these and talk these things through when you get married. Uh, it, it was only later with the Pharisees where they made this prohibition racial rather than spiritual. And uh, they, they ignored the impact of Deuteronomy 7, verse 4. Sixth, in the New Testament, the principle is still the same. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. And that word for bound is the idea of a, a close intimacy, a partnership where one person's values and opinions will deeply influence the other person. There are some business partnerships that I think you really need to take a look at with this. Because uh, business partners, you've got unbelievers and believers, you you just have to be careful. You can't make a universal application there, but it's important. Uh, Paul goes on to say, for what partnership, that's Medicare, and it indicates a close, close intimacy. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? If you're a believer and you marry an antinomian unbeliever, it may seem like a lot of fun at first, but down the road it's going to be tragic. What fellowship, and the word for fellowship is the word koinonia, which indicates a joint participation toward a common goal. And you have to make sure that you have those common goals. What fellowship has light with darkness? So seventh, parents need to teach your kids this, you need to drill it into them, or one day they'll come home with some good-looking unbeliever just like Samson and make their life miserable. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And that is seen over and over and over again. So their response is simply, Well, can't you just find somebody else that's a good Jewish girl? And they don't realize that behind the scenes God is working because Samson's out of, he's carnal, and God's going to use him in spite of himself to accomplish his goals of of causing disruption. And then we have a shift in verse 5. And verse 5, they're going to go down to Timnah and meet the girl. But something happens all the way. And this is the subplot. This is the alternate plot. So the first plot line is uh, marrying the girl from Timnah. And then there's this plot line. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And so you ought to be asking yourself, what's he doing going near vineyards as a Nazarite? He's prohibited from even touching a grapevine. So he's careless and he doesn't care. And he gets separated from his parents, and a young lion comes roaring toward him. So you think this is just an accident, just happenstance, just chance? Or do you think God has something to do with this, bringing this lion into his uh, up close and personal with Samson? And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily. This is the, the, the second time. So that he tore him as one tears a kid. That's not a young child. That is a baby goat. 
as one tears a kid, though he had nothing in his hand. That's interesting. But he didn't tell his mom and daddy. He's keeping secrets. He's not going to tell them about it. Because what happens in the process of killing the lion? He's touching a carcass. And that is another violation of his Nazarite vow. And so he goes down and talks uh, to the woman, to the, and she looked good. Once again, it's the same language. She is right to Samson. She's right in his eyes. First John 2:16 and 17 say, "For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. See, this is Samson. He's all about the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, some people take that as salvation, but salvation is not based on doing away with your lust patterns. None of us will be going to be saved. The key word is that word abides. In Johannine literature, the word abides is always used of fellowship. It is not used of getting saved. It is used of fellowship. And so that's what it means. The one who does the will of God abides, stays in fellowship. The one who doesn't is out of fellowship and operating according to the sin nature. So later, when Samson returns to take her, I love the language here. He's going to take her. And there, there's no romance here. There's just lust. He turns aside to look at the carcass of the lion. So this is another problem. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. Now, I don't know how many of y'all have ever, have ever killed an animal, gutted an animal, or have seen an animal that has been, let's say, roadkill by the side of the road and been there for a few days so that the carcass is bloated. It is wet, a wet and moist environment. Bees do not set up their hives in a wet and moist environment. So something really interesting is going on here that bees do not make their hives in the rotting carcass of a lion, and not that much time has gone by. Some time has gone by, but not a lot. And that this carcass has basically petrified. It's been dried out so that it makes a really nice place, like a, inside of a hollow trunk of a tree, for the, for the bees to set up their, uh, make their hive. And so this is telling us something, that this too is from the Lord, that he's, he's directing something. And it's a test. Remember that Nazarene vow? Nazarite vow? What are you going to do? So he's going to grab hold of that carcass and scoop out all the honey. Again, he just doesn't care what God says. He's total antinomian. And the conclusion to this is that God works through Samson not because of Samson's spirituality, not because of his obedience, not because of his desire to serve the Lord. But in, in spite of all that, Samson is rebellious. He's insolent. He is disrespectful towards his parents. He, he disrespects his uh, Nazarite vow. He doesn't pay any attention to it. He's not concerned about God or anything related to the things of the Lord. God works through him out of grace because he's going to, he wants to keep Israel from assimilating to the Gentiles. And this has been the problem that Jews have had since Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. And if you go back to Genesis and read about uh, Delilah and uh, not Delilah, you you read about Dinah, and you read about the uh, uh, Levi, and you read about the brothers in Shechem. They have Jacob has married a Canaanite. I mean, excuse me, uh, uh, Judah has married a Canaanite. 
they are turning into Canaanites. That's why God was behind the move of getting Joseph sold into slavery so the Midianites would take him down to Egypt and sell him as a slave to the Egyptians so God could elevate him in power in the house of Pharaoh so that he would then provide a haven for Jacob and the brothers to come. What did Joseph say after after Jacob died and the brothers are afraid that now he's going to take revenge? He looks at him and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God works behind the scenes in ways that we can't quite fathom. And it's what I was talking about in uh, in our study in Philippians, that things happen that look bad. Paul is in prison. He's in prison for five years. What's going to happen to the gospel? God's still in control, and he's going to work things out. All things work together for good. So that's what he's doing with Samson. He's going to use Samson, not because Samson's a great believer and and trusting him through all this, but in spite of that, God is going to use him to cause trouble so the Jews don't assimilate. They're all through their history, up through the um, up through the 19th century in Europe. Jews thought of themselves first and foremost as French, English, German, Austrian, or Swiss, not as Jews. And they were on the verge of assimilating, and it has been said that if another generation or two had continued in the 19th century, that the Jews of Europe would have completely disappeared into the European gene pool. What happened? the Holocaust, and they they had to come back together and start over in Israel. Zionism developed. So that's always been a problem in, in Jewish history. And I can give you example after example of this, but God is going to work to prevent that so that there's going to be constant friction and antagonism between the Jews and the Philistines. So he doesn't make Samson do what Samson should be doing. He works through him, and he doesn't compromise his volitional responsibility. So next time we'll come back and continue the complexities of this episode. Father, thank you for this time that we can see how your grace works, and we see how you work behind the scenes in history to bring about your uh, your desires and your will that even when people choose to disobey you, you are able to work through that and bring about your will. So, Father, encourage us as we see things in our own lives that aren't what we expected, aren't what we wanted, but we know that you are bringing those things about for a purpose and that we can claim that promise that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We thank you for that promise and all the others. In Christ's name, amen.